You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, November 19th, 2006, show number 14. Today's topics are interview techniques and entrepreneurship. For comments or questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org, or you can Skype us at IntIce, or can IM us at IntIce on Yahoo, or IntellectualIce, all one word, on AIM. Hello there and welcome back. We generally expect that many of you aren't going to listen to the chatter, and we know this because apparently there are numerous people out there who still don't know that episode 11 was an April Fool's joke. But this time, because of some changes we're going to have to make, we ask you that you listen to it. But for now, on to our regularly scheduled program. Hi there, and welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. We had a little bit of a hiatus, but if you listen to the chatter, you'll find out what's going on with that. I'm doing both interviews today. My first interview is with Tiffany, and her topic is... Interview tips, specifically job interview tips. So what is the purpose of covering interview tips? Well, a couple of reasons we're doing this. The first one actually is kind of funny because Rob and I were at dinner, and we were sitting across from two people who were quite clearly on their first date and observing how similar that sort of first date is to a first interview where you want to divulge a lot of information about yourself that's favorable but not too much. You don't want to go on about past girlfriends as this poor gentleman was doing. <laughs> yeah. Just like in an interview, you don't want to go on about past jobs, at least not about the negative stuff. At that point, I decided this was something that we probably needed to cover. So brief roadmap for what we're going to do today. We'll first talk about information that'll help you land the job you want. We'll then discuss specifically telephone interviews because those are becoming far more common than they used to be. We will then discuss face-to-face -face interviews and some of the differences there. And then we'll talk about some specific issues that you may encounter and we'll suggest some ways that you can handle them. And as always, this is targeted more for the IT people. So this is for geeks. Well, okay, let's start with some basic guidelines that a person should follow regardless of the type of interview that the person's in for. Okay. The first thing to remember is that regardless of whether your interview is an in-person interview or an interview over the phone or whether it's with a group or a bunch of people or even what level of the company you're talking to, it's all about first impressions. So you need to show the interviewer that you possess the qualities that they're seeking in order to fill this position. Another way to state this is that you want to present yourself as a solution to a problem they're trying to solve through the hiring process. Now, much of this information that you communicate about yourself is coming not through your resume and not even what you say, but by the way you present yourself and respond. And so you need to appear prepared, competent, capable, and interested. Now, given this, ways that you want to go about doing this are, first of all, you want to make the very best use of your time and the time of the interviewer during the interview. And you want to prepare for the interview by finding out a reasonable amount of information about the interviewer and or the company. Now, what's reasonable? It really depends. It depends on what kind of position you're going for. An entry-level position, you often have to find out less information about the company than you do for a management level position. But at the very least, go to their website so you know who they are, what they do, and what they present as being important to them. Now this is a step you should take regardless because you want to find out as much about this company that you're going to end up working for before you step foot in their doors as possible. You want to find out, are you a good cultural fit? Do you believe in what they're doing? Now from there, it just depends on the position and how badly you want it. You may need to check out recent news about them. Go ahead and Google them. Find out how many employees do they have? Who are their competitors? 
Are there any major legal actions being taken against them? And how are they doing financially? You can also find out if they've released any major press releases, such as might occur with a significant business change. What you need to remember through all of this research is that the point is to appear knowledgeable about them and their business, and again, to find out how you fit into what they do and how you can solve more and more of their problems, because that's the information that if you're armed with that, and you can convey that to the person or people who are interviewing you, they're likely to be more impressed than if you know nothing at all about the company. The next step is, regardless of what kind of interview, go ahead and summarize or rephrase the questions if you want to. And you're going to use this for a couple of different reasons. One is to buy some time. If they throw a question at you that you just really were not expecting, this will give you a little bit of time to think about your answer. It'll also make sure that you understand the question and it'll show the interviewer that you understand the question before you answer it. The next step is that you need to respond to the questions you're asked. You can use the question and your answer to segue into something you'd like to say, but be sure you answer the interviewer's question in the process. Don't dodge it. You really need to answer it. An example of this where you can use it to your benefit. One of the common questions that interviewers are asking is describe a particularly tough challenge you had at your last job and how you handled it or something along those lines. And you can answer it with the description of a really tough customer the company was trying to please and your role with the customer. But then you could describe how as a result of your interactions with this customer, you created a streamlined trouble ticket diagnosis matrix that reduced call escalations by 20%. And then you can bring your answer back to the specific question with something like, so although working with that customer was a real challenge, ultimately the situation prompted me to create something that benefited the entire department and all of our customers. And so this is how you can take a question that, you know, even this one, which can sometimes be answered in a way that reflects your skills negatively, you can answer it positively and you can bring it around and show how you offer solutions. And that's something that really impresses interviewers. Of course, whatever story you tell should be true. And then finally, be prepared to talk about yourself and what you can do for the company. Never, ever respond with, it's all there on my resume. I've interviewed people who've responded with, oh, yeah, I, I did that. Didn't you see it on my resume? And that's sort of off-putting if you're the interviewer. Every question, even if the answer is on your resume, is a chance for you to sell yourself to the interviewer, to provide them with memorable examples of what you can do for them or for their client, basically to help you make the favorable first impression that you need to make with them so that the interviewing and the hiring process can continue. Okay, I'd like to hear you talk about phone interviews because I know personally that I have blown phone interviews because I'm waiting and they call 20 minutes late and I've got the headset on and I'm working on the electrical in the basement and not really paying attention to the interview and, well, you know what, I just don't do too well. That's actually probably not that uncommon, at least from my experience with interviewing people and then with what I've heard people say from interviewing people and also from people who've just had interviews that they feel like they've blown. The first thing that I have to emphasize about the phone interview is that you must take it seriously. It has become far more pervasive. And in fact, I challenge you to think of your last couple of jobs, let's say since 2000. I challenge you to consider whether you could have gotten any of those jobs without an initial screening interview over the phone. And I think that most people, especially in IT, when they look at it that way, they'll realize how important the phone interview is. That at this point in time, it's almost impossible to even get in the door without first passing at least one screening interview, if not more. 
The other piece of this is that many of us are working with recruiters these days, either for full-time employment or contract. Chances are, if you've jumped jobs at all in the past six years, you have worked with a recruiter, and recruiters almost exclusively will screen people the first time over the phone. So it's very important. This is true. So given that, I'm going to cover the do's and the don'ts, but I'm going to cover the don'ts first because that's the shorter list. Shorter, but probably much more pervasive. Probably. That's probably true. The first one is don't take the call while you're doing the electrical. No. Don't take the call <laughs> in a room with lots of background noise. This can be television, radio, kids, games, pets, etc. And I have to tell you, this is so annoying. I once interviewed a woman who did two very memorable things. I'll never forget. I will never hire her. The first thing that she did is she wasn't answering my questions, and I could hear background noise. And when I finally asked her if this was a good time, and mind you, she had called me. When I asked her if this was a good time, she said, "Oh, I'm sorry. I'm watching TV. I guess I should turn it off." Oh man. And the other thing that she did was she kept saying, "Oh, it's on my resume, isn't it?" Yeah, yeah. Don't say that because if it's on your resume, you should know. <laughs> right. So the first one, no background noise. That's oh, here's bad. a good one. If you ever hear something on a podcast in the background, make sure that doesn't happen in an interview. <laughs> there you go. Another one is don't wait several rings to answer the phone. Probably don't pick it up on the first ring. I would sort of take the same approach that I take with dating on this. You don't want to appear desperate. But certainly, don't wait ten rings. Don't let the answering machine pick it up. Wait a ring or two, grab it. Also, don't engage in any activity that will take up a lot of your ability to process and respond to what is being said and asked. Kind of like the electrical. Kind of like the electrical. Yeah. yeah. Or driving, eating or drinking, ordering watching food, TV. watching TV, chatting via IM, checking your email, chasing the kids around. Yeah, gaming. If the activity will distract or annoy you or the interviewer, you should not be engaging in it during the call. Remember, again, we're taking these calls seriously because this is your first screen. This is your first impression. The other thing you should not do is take other calls or engage in other conversations unless it's absolutely necessary during the interview. And I have had situations where I knew somebody else was going to call. I knew I was going to have to take that call or answer the door, and I just let the interviewer know in advance that you may have to do so. It's always better to prepare them in advance. They're usually a little bit more understanding about it in those circumstances. Another one is don't give monosyllabic answers or very, very long-winded replies. Yeah, I'm particularly bad about the long-winded replies. You may have noticed. I'll recommend that you proceed cautiously and conservatively, but always positively with your responses. Since you're missing out on the body language and visual cues you'd have in person, just. Proceed cautiously. Another thing is, don't speak negatively about past companies, coworkers, bosses, other recruiters. This is a major turnoff, and it will work against you. Negativity usually works against you. Yeah, they tend to think that you'll talk about them that way next if they hire you. Right, they assume you're the problem. The last one is don't make potentially offensive jokes or discuss hot button topics or swear. Now, a possible exception here is if the interviewer does one of these things first, and even then, I personally always avoid offensive or highly controversial topics and talk in an interview. And it's possible that the interviewer is testing your sense of humor, but they could just be trying to weed you out. Not worth the risk. And don't volunteer any political or religious opinions, even if they do try to feel you out on it. Do's the much longer list. Oh yeah. So first, again, again, take the interview seriously. Whether it's a hiring manager or a recruiter, if it's a recruiter, remember that this individual is trying to figure out whether or not they feel comfortable letting you talk to their paying client. 
So if you blow it with them, you blow it for the job, you probably blow it for any other job they're trying to fill. Do try to engage with the interviewer in a personal manner, and that is just make them laugh, make them smile, make them feel comfortable. You also need to get used to the fact that you will have at least one telephone or screening interview for any job you apply for. This is just the first step and first impression, so treat it as such. Another thing that you want to do, and this helps you take the interview seriously, is schedule time for it. Enter it into your calendar and confirm the date and time before leaving or hanging up. Also, make sure you know if you will be calling the interviewer or if they will be calling you, and either get and confirm their name and number or clearly state your information to be sure they get it. This is especially important because all of us, we tend to assume that the interviewer is going to be calling us. But this isn't always the case, and there are occasions where a recruiter might not actually mention it to you one way or the other because they think you already know. Another thing that you want to do is finish whatever you are doing and be ready to either make or take the call five to ten minutes before the scheduled time. If you're making the call, don't call any earlier than five minutes before the scheduled time. Try to be precise and call at the exact time, and definitely do not call late. Yep, whip out your atomic clock on them if you have to. <laughs> That's right. You also want to prepare for the call, and any notes that you have to take by sitting either at your computer or having a pen and paper with you. If you call, confirm this is still a good time to talk. If you're called, thank the interviewer for taking the time to call. These seem like really simple niceties, but they just set a friendly tone right at the beginning. You also want to speak positively about your abilities, about your desire or willingness to work, your past employers, pretty much everything. And this can be tough, especially while you're unemployed. But you want to come off as the kind of person that someone else, either a recruiter or a hiring manager, wants to talk to and is happy to recommend others speak with or even hire. So it's very important to stay positive. You also want to ask intelligent questions about the job, both to clarify for your own purposes and because it makes you sound interested. I actually have sort of a canned set of questions that I will ask about a company, and then I use whichever seems the most appropriate at the time. But having a, a sort of a canned base lets me always feel like I've got something to ask. And interviewers do want you to ask some questions. Otherwise, they think you're not interested. They do want you to ask some questions, but you've got to be a little bit cautious because you don't want to start going on a spiel of, how much does it pay? How good are the benefits? Do I get a car? Can I work from home most of the time? Can I, like, take three-week vacations and, like, never bother to tell the employer that I'm going to be gone? We should provide some examples of the types of questions that you can ask. Right. How long has the company been in business if that's not clear? Or if I know they've gone through a merger, ask when the merger was effective and maybe where the home company is housed. I love to ask how many people are in the company. And I also like to ask about the specific types of departments that I normally work with. Is there a tech writing team since often companies that I work for don't have one? And another one along those lines is asking how long they've been in business. Right. Although that's information that maybe you found when you were researching the company, if they have gone through mergers or name changes, then it may not be obvious. And finally, the last of the do's if you have a phone interview is thank the interviewer for their time and state that you're looking forward to hearing back from them soon and specify a time frame if possible. It's okay to do that, especially if they indicate when the hiring process will complete. And while we're on that topic, it is absolutely okay to ask them what their time frame is. They're probably going to ask you when you can start a position, so it is acceptable for you to ask them when they plan on hiring somebody, when this process will be over, or even what is our next step. Okay, so how does this change when we start talking about face-to-face -face interviews? Well, with face-to-face -face interviews, a lot of it's going to be the same, but you have some additional cues to watch for, and you also have your whole physical impression that you need to make. So we'll start again with the don'ts. 
do not engage in a volley of IMs oh, on your no. BlackBerry during a face-to-face interview. No, 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 no. Bad. It makes the interviewer think that you don't take this seriously and that it's not important to you. And if the interview isn't important, then how can the job be important to you? Right. Dues. Dress professionally. Err on the side of caution if necessary. In IT, you know, it's a little bit tougher. Well, absolutely. I remember a Dilbert comic strip. He was talking about clothes saying something about a person, and then they showed a guy in a T-shirt and jeans, and it said, This clothes say, I'm the only person who actually understands the system. And this is often true in the computing industry, in the IT industry in general, where if you show up at an interview wearing a pristine suit and a tie, then they assume that you're too desperate and you really don't know the environment very well. Or that you're a college graduate. If you're an older person and you show up in a suit and a tie, then they assume you haven't been in the industry long enough to know not to wear a suit and a tie to an interview. Right. And and where I say this gets complicated is if you're doing IT work, but within a different industry, and the best example I can think of here is financial services, then this does go back again to knowing about the company. What's their industry? Is it a conservative industry or is it not? Right. If you're going to one of the big 10 consulting firms, yeah, okay, suit and a tie, that works. Right. Or if you're in sales. Or if you're in sales. If you're going to one of the serious techie firms, suit and a tie won't work. But regardless of the type of company, there are some things that you need to pay attention to. One is your breath or other potential odors. Well, generally as a rule, if you're going to an interview, the interviewer should never smell you. Right. Good, bad, otherwise. Right. That's true. That's actually a good rule. You should also make sure that your hair, fingernails, clothing, any items you bring to the interview are neat and in good condition. Another thing that you want to do is arrive a little bit early. This is a little bit different from the telephone interview, but when you arrive at a job interview, you may have to complete forms and you never ever want to arrive late. Tardiness puts you at a disadvantage and it's an early and perhaps even final mark against you. 10-15 minutes early is not unusual. Much earlier than that is probably inappropriate. Right. You want to come prepared with extra copies of your resume. You want to have work samples with you, if applicable, and the names of your references. On bringing samples of your work, what I find in my line of work is that often the employer won't necessarily ask for it when I'm on the phone with them, but it's still a good idea to bring it. It just depends on your line of work whether or not you'd bring samples. Another thing, and this is similar to phone interviews, but applies more broadly, is that you need to be friendly and polite to everybody you encounter. You never know what pull any of these individuals has in helping you land the job. So do yourself a favor and be nice to everyone. Something else I want to toss in is if they ask you whether or not you can do something and you can't, you admit it. You admit it completely, unabashedly, unashamedly. No, I can't do that. I could learn it quickly, but don't lie. In fairness to the employer and to yourself, it's okay to mention if the skill translates into other skills that you possess, but definitely do not lie and say that you're an expert in something that you're not. Okay. Everyone has been in a situation, an interview, the interviewer asks them that question that they just weren't expecting or asks them to tell them the, the evil question. What is the most horrible thing about you that I could ever imagine? How do you deal with that? The way that the question has often been posed to me is along the lines of, what are your flaws, gaps, areas of improvement? That question. And the biggest key to this is to think of something in advance and make sure it's not one of the common cliche problem areas. One of them is difficulty delegating or feeling like you're the only person who can do the job right, things of that nature. 
So you want to avoid those. They're they hear cliche. them a lot. Yeah, they hear them a lot because they're sort of like, oh, I'm so good that I'm bad. And That's they sort don't of the believe answer. them. No, they don't. They don't believe them anymore. The next step is think of something that you're not perfect at, but that either would not significantly impact the job at hand or that is a reasonable flaw. Yeah, my favorite one in that category is that I get tunnel vision. And this is true. When I'm working on something, everything else around me just vanishes and I make an end run for that one topic. This occasionally bites me when I'm working on something and that's not the easiest solution to the problem. I'll fail to notice that I can just walk around it while I'm bashing at it. See, and that sounded good. I mean, he's saying, I do have this flaw. This is where it could cause a problem. And then he could even follow that up with, and this is what I'm doing to try to overcome it. Right. And there he has his answer for the interview. With me, my latest one is that I don't have as much e-learning experience as I'd like to have. Plain and simple. I can explain why. I can explain what I'm doing about it. But that's my problem. The next thing is that you want to spin it positively. You know that it's a flaw, but then here are the steps that you're taking to improve in this area. And finally, be prepared to give a specific example of the problem if asked. And this is where this gets back to those cliches, because interviewers caught on to the fact that we were all using the same sort of flaws. And so they may push for an example if the flaw either seems not significant enough or if it's not relevant to any of the type of work you do. So make sure it's relevant and mm-hmm. make sure it's real and make sure you have an example of it because you may be pushed. And if you don't have an example, you're going to look like a dork. Okay, and another category of questions we just hate to answer are the ones that employers are really not allowed to ask. So how do you deal with those? Well, first of all, these include basically all of the questions that could lead an employer to discriminate against you in an illegal manner. I mean, obviously, hiring is discrimination. You're trying to find the discriminating factors that you can legally use to hire a person. But this is the illegal discrimination. So this is how old are you? Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you plan to have kids? Have you ever been accused of a crime? Now, it's okay for them to ask if you've been convicted of a felony, but not accused. Have you ever been sexually harassed at work or have you ever sexually harassed someone? These are the kinds of questions. Now, first of all, remember that not every interviewer will know that some questions are illegal. Recruiters probably will know which questions they can't ask, and individuals in HR should also know. But hiring managers and others who you may interview, such as members of the team you would be joining, they simply may not know. So keep this in mind, and don't lose your composure when you're asked these questions. Try to just take it in stride and then respond in one of a number of ways. Your choices can include, first of all, if you think your answer won't harm your chances and you're comfortable answering the question, go ahead and answer it. But if you prefer to decline the question, you can decline to answer, and you can decline on the grounds that you don't see how it's relevant to the position, or you could state that answering it would make you uncomfortable, or you could simply state that you prefer not to answer the question. Now, obviously, this is risky, but there's just no great way to handle an illegal question. But regardless of how you answer it, be polite. And the final way that you can decline, and this is probably the one that will ensure that you do not get the job, is that you can decline to answer the question on the grounds that it's illegal. Yeah, once you start pulling out L words, they're not terribly comfortable about having you as an employee. Yeah, you scare them away. Now, arguably, if that's the way they screen their employees, by how old and how many kids and whether or not you've been sexually harassed, you probably don't want to work for that company anyway. Probably not. Now, for this next one, I'm going to invite Rob to provide a lot of input because this is an area where he has far more experience than I do, and it's handling group interviews. Oh, the group interviews, those are fun. Sometimes you feel like you're being pounded on from all directions, but the most important thing with a regular interview, it's also very important, but it's especially important with group interviews is to keep your cool. 
If you start getting flustered, then you'll forget everything and be reduced to a quacking duck. And nobody wants to hire a quacking duck. No, that's true. My experience with the group interviews has largely been with presentations. With Within training and instructional design, I have several times been asked to prepare a brief course, like a 10 or 15 minute course, and then present it to a group of trainers and instructional designers, and sometimes they bring other people in, managers, and I feel very good about this. I actually enjoy that challenge. But then I will say that as far as the sit down and have a bunch of people just fire questions at me, I've done that just a couple of times, and I I do find that to be quite intimidating, actually worse than standing up and presenting a class that I just wrote. In programming environments, on the other hand, that's kind of sort of the norm, because a programmer actually has to be able to fit in with the group that he's working with. If a programmer is pretty much in the habit of playing lone wolf and just going for the end run all by himself and not paying attention to anything that anyone else is doing, then he probably won't work well in an extreme programming environment where everybody pretty much has someone sitting next to him or at least reviewing their stuff every step of the way. Also, you tend to have people who are very strict with the way they format things versus people who have no formatting rules whatsoever. And often it gets down to religious arguments where are you a buyer and Emacs person? And a lot of this really doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you can perform your job, which in a lot of cases makes it unfair, but it also has to do with whether or not you can get along with people who think that way. Right, and one way to approach that is just keep reminding yourself that what's being presented in the interview are probably extremes, and you need to determine if this is something that you can work with it, if it's not that extreme. And as long as you are of the mindset of, okay, whatever, give me a tool, let me do my job, and you can at least work with the person who is very extreme, you're probably okay. Just don't take an extreme position. Certainly don't get in an argument with them. But if you decide that that's absolutely something you could not do, then I suppose by all means, go ahead and argue if you really don't want the job. In a lot of cases, companies will arrange a group interview simply because they don't want to put all of the interviewing weight on one person. They don't want to say, okay, you come up with 50 questions to answer this person, have it done on Monday. Programmers, they're programming. They don't really want to do this. They don't have time to do it. And usually they're being put under pressure to get their jobs done instead of doing this. So instead of having one person do all the interviewing, they'll just have five people sort of get together and figure out what they want to ask the person. Right. And as soon as you leave, those people will sit down and talk about you. And the situations that I've been in where I've actually done group interviews, you can be almost guaranteed that they will make a decision about you one way or the other right after you leave. This is almost entirely true. Which does make it a more efficient and effective use of their time. Now, one of the problems is that they occasionally get into a case of group thing where they'll try and outdo each other with clever questions to ask you. And if they do that, just answer them calmly and honestly. And don't be afraid to say, I don't know, because chances are if they're getting into the group mentality like that, they'll try to come up with questions that the other four people in this room couldn't answer either. Sort of a better than I'm the smartest person in the room yeah, absolutely. type of a thing. And just don't fuel it. Right. And I remember at one point I was in a group interview with four engineers where I swear I got the most trick questions I have ever received in an interview. One after another where I just had to answer, I'm sorry, you haven't given me enough information to answer that question. Which is unfortunate, but it's the best way to handle that kind of a scenario. Be nice, be polite. Whatever you do, don't get defensive. Don't get hostile. And this kind of leads into the next tip, which is how to handle a mistake you realize you've made, either while you're still at the interview or after the interview ends. What kind of mistakes? 
Well, for instance, you answer a question and either you said you didn't know and you actually did know the answer or you gave them the wrong answer. Or recently I was at an interview and this is such a simple mistake, but to me it felt significant. I recommended a podcast to the person who is interviewing me. And then I realized right after I left that the podcast I told him to go listen to was the wrong one. Little mistake. Little mistake. But it was a mistake that I felt that I needed to correct. And since it was already after the interview, I sent him an email. I wanted to send a thank you email anyway, which I know I shouldn't say I wanted to. I felt obligated to send a thank you email. I hate sending these, but I do it anyway. And as a part of that, I sort of used that to be kind of like the icebreaker in that email. Oh, hey, I recommended this podcast to you, and it's actually this one, and here's the link. And then thanked him for his time and said that I hope to hear from him soon. Which is a useful link. Now, there are some mistakes that are obviously unrecoverable, like the time I completely spaced the word in C++ that allocates memory. How funny that it should be a word that allocates memory that you would forget. Yeah. That's true. That's not recoverable. But if you've made a simple mistake in the interview, you can actually use that to your advantage later when you send the follow-up email or if you make the follow-up phone call. But if it's something huge, you're better to just cut your losses and let it go. Yeah. Okay, now the really difficult part that no one ever really wants to do, but you have to do eventually because it's like the entire point of the interview, salary negotiations. First of all, old school thought. They tell us that you should never discuss salary and especially never discuss salary in the first interview and that we should never bring it up first. Think of money as one of the make or break factors, which it is. If the interview went well from both sides' perspective, then discussing money removes one more potential obstacle. If the interview did not go well and this is not a good fit, then discussing money is probably unnecessary because other factors will probably already eliminate the possibility of employment with this company. So, my practice, if I'm dealing with a recruiter, I always bring up the issue of salary, whether or not the recruiter does so, in our first call, assuming I I'm interested in the position. Now again, if I'm not interested, I don't even bother. The reason I do this is because I can tell you that the times I have not done this, I have always regretted it, discovering after emotional investment and usually during or after an interview with a hiring manager that the rate being offered is entirely unacceptable. And I hate wasting my time and I hate wasting the time of others. So when I talk with recruiters, we always talk salary and location first. Oh yeah, this is especially true nowadays that the interview process can be really extended. You can spend several weeks going through five or six interviews with the recruiter and the HR person and the technical director and the blah, 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 blah. And you don't want to go through all of that to find out that they're going to pay you half of your usual rate. Well, and the other thing is that since the dot-com bust, one of the things that I've seen is that everybody wants God for 35000 a year. Oh, yeah. We talked about this during resume writing tips, and I will harp on it again, that because there is the possibility, you may think that this job is so good and it requires so much skill that there is no way they're going to pay, you know, a pittance for this, and yet companies do. All the time. If you live in Denver, the Rocky Mountain Internet Users Group occasionally laugh at people for posting a job out there with all these requirements and a tiny little salary. Yeah. So I will say again, if you're talking with a recruiter, especially, always bring up the issue of salary. Bring it up right away. With hiring managers, I usually bring up money the first time we talk, but I do it towards the end of the interviewer if the interviewer has not raised the issue. I find more and more, though, that the interviewer will bring up money before I do, and that's particularly true with contract and management positions. So money comes up right away. It's, it's just not the case that I'm going to go through three interviews before I know what a position pays. I'm not going to waste my time. And I suggest you don't either. 
Okay, another sticky wicket is if you've had a bad job experience in your past. How do you deal with questions about that? What do you tell them about it? Well, first of all, the way that you put the information on your resume will, to a large extent, determine the questions that you're asked. If you were at a position and it ended very, very badly, but it was short, you may consider leaving it off your resume so it never gets brought up in the first place. But if, for whatever reason, you're asked a question about why you left the company and it was very negative, you need to spin it in as favorable a light as possible. You can mention things like the climate of the company wasn't a good fit for you, or you left because you determined there was something else that you wanted to do. These are cases where if it's very negative and if it's a controversial reason that you left, I would probably use a different reason about why I left. And then to the extent that you have to talk about the negative experience, talk about it as positively as possible. Talk about what you learned and how you grew. That although it was unfortunate that you had to leave when you did, you felt like in the time you were there that you really helped the company and that, you know, these are the changes that you made that were positive and this is how you grew as an employee while you were there. Try to focus on those things. Don't get into a, my boss was an asshole and I hated the company type of a situation. Just don't go there. No. Ever. So you mentioned if it's a bad experience but if it's a short gap, you can just leave it entirely off. What about those chunks in your history when you just weren't working? How do you handle that? Well, the first thing is that you want to rehearse standard answers for any gaps that you have in your work history. And second is don't bring up the gap first. And then be as honest as you can, but avoid providing very much detail. So the goal is to settle any concerns about the gap and then move on with more positive discussion about what you can do for the employer. If the gap was related to a personal problem, so divorce, health problem, legal problem, whatever, try to find a way to explain it without including any details. The way that I've heard some people address this is they say, I went on a sabbatical. Okay, it was a forced sabbatical because my wife left me and blah, 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 but it was a sabbatical and that's the way that they choose to view it and describe it and that is absolutely fine. Another thing that you can do is if you took a class at any time during that period, you can say that you took off some time to improve your skills in some area. If your gap is due to the dot-com bus, just say so and emphasize that during that time you worked on projects of your own. For instance, Rob, he was unemployed right after the, well, during the horrible period of the dot-com bust, but he was working that whole time just on different projects, many of them his some own. Some of it paid, some of it didn't. Right. You could also say that you cared for your children as a stay-at-home parent, that you did some nonprofit work. You can just tell them that you took time off to concentrate on other portions of your life. Right, that's always acceptable. And another one that I hear a lot is people saying, well, that gap was when I started my own business, but it didn't really take off. Oh, why is that business not on my resume? Because it has absolutely nothing to do with the other jobs listed on my resume. It was a completely different type of business. Often you can put a label on the gap. Just name an activity you engaged in without getting into exactly how much of the time was spent on that activity and the interviewer will just move on. Gaps are red flags and it's just your job to provide a reasonable answer as to what you were doing and to make the gap look like it was your choice. Do not, under any circumstances, play the victim in your answer. Even if it was the dot-com bust, explain what you were doing during that time period. Okay, so you get through the interview, you're still interested in the job, think this might be something you want to do, you're out the door. Then what do you do? Go home and sit by the phone? Probably not. Well, actually, even just right before you leave, right before you leave, one of the things that I like to try to do if I am interested in the job is I like to promise them some piece of information. Oh, I'll send you, you know, a link to that thing that we talked about. Or, oh, I will email you my references. Or I'll send you another copy of my resume or work samples or whatever. That's one thing that I like to do before I leave because 
because then they are expecting communication from me. But let's assume that you've already walked out the door. One thing that we are told, and and I do believe that this is beneficial, although I, I have to admit that I'm on the fence about this. We are supposed to acknowledge that we were at the interview and that we're still interested in the job. And we're supposed to do this very quickly. For instance, I, I did some research on this just because it's an area that I'm not very strong in. And the things that I'm seeing are that you need to do this within 24 hours. And this shows good follow through on your part, shows that you're still interested in the job. And what you're doing is that you're stating to the company, you're thanking them for their time, you're telling them you're still interested. If you promise to send them something, you're doing that. And you are inviting them to contact you again with questions. You may even send a question to them about the company. Oh, I thought of something after I left. But what you are doing is you are trying to continue a dialogue with them so that they don't forget about you in favor of another candidate, so that they will call you back and that the hiring process can continue. So do these rules apply if you're just interviewing at a consulting firm that may or may not actually have a job they want to present you to? You know, I find that they do. And oddly enough, I am more comfortable following up with a recruiter with an email. And I couldn't tell you why this is the case, but I definitely like to follow up with them after our first talk and then send them something such as an updated copy of my resume or sending them my references, which usually you don't give somebody your references unless they're solicited. And of course, if you're giving somebody your references, you are reminding the people who you're using as references that you are giving that information. You are requesting their permission again each time. (laughs) Just a reminder. If you're not in the habit of talking to these guys often enough to let them know that you're passing their name around as a reference, maybe you shouldn't be so comfortable with using them as a reference. Right. Anyway, I do like to send recruiters my references. Often they have um, different forms that they want completed or they just want some little bit of information. And so usually there's some email dialogue following up with a recruiter. It's less obvious to me. It's less natural with an employer. So I have to sort of force myself to do it. However, I do understand the psychology and the logic behind doing it. I'm going to recommend that you do it, that you do it within 24 hours. But if you're more comfortable calling, it is okay to leave a message on the voicemail. So even if you do it after hours because you don't really want to talk to that person, that's okay. But remember to keep your message brief to the point and very upbeat and positive. So if you're in the interview and there's something about the job that you're really not sure you can even do, like, for instance, they want you to travel to Alaska twice a week, and you really don't think you can do that because of your life circumstances or it requires some skill that you don't have, how do you bring this up in the interview without them thinking that you're completely uninterested in the job? Well, that's a good question because with every interview, there's the potential for you to have concerns about the job. They're going to have concerns about your ability to do the job. You're going to have concerns about the job itself. This could be location, relocation, telecommuting, travel, duration of the job, salary, any other aspects or conditions of the job and or the company. And for me, this comes down to honesty and wastes of other people's time. And it's very close to my position on salary. And if I really feel that I could not live with an aspect of the job, it's my responsibility to share this with the interviewer. And in some cases, this means I'm out of the running for the job. But in others, I found the employer was willing to work with me and we were able to compromise and come to a solution. So it is worth the time to ask. And even when I didn't get the job, I've always felt good about being honest and about not wasting the interviewer's time. They were able to eliminate me from the running and move on immediately to the next candidate. Sometimes it works for you. Sometimes the thing that you think there's no way the employer would do for you, sometimes they will do it. 
Okay, so this is a lot of good information. Can you provide us with like the most important things that people need to remember for interviewing? Yes. Let me give you just a handful. First of all, take phone interviews as seriously as face-to-face -face interviews. Second, ask questions to help clarify what the interviewer is asking. And then related to that is tailor your responses to the specific job and the question whenever possible and speak in terms of solutions. So rather than repeating what's on your resume, describe how your knowledge, skills, and experience relate specifically to the problems the hiring manager is ultimately trying to solve. And they will often tell you specifically what problems they're trying to solve. Another one is sell yourself. Portray yourself in as favorable and relevant a light as possible without lying about what you can do. Would you hire yourself? That's what it comes down to. So here's your chance to tell the interviewer why it's beneficial to them and their company to hire you and what you can do for them. And also, if your interview skills are rusty or weak, find someone who will engage in interview role play with you. Give them a list of questions and a job description and have them act out the role of the hiring manager. Dress as you would for the interview, enter the room you're using as the interview room, and ask the other person to try to stay in character playing the part of the interviewer. And when you finish the role play, ask them for critical feedback so you can find out the areas in which you need to improve and then role play again if necessary to help you gain some comfort with interviewing. And the last thing, and this is this is very subjective, but I find that it is probably the most valuable piece of advice that I cling to during the very stressful interviewing period. Try not to become too emotionally involved in the outcome while you're in the interview. And the way that I do that is I just tell myself, nope, I've already decided I'm not going to take this. And, and I will say that every job that I've very effectively done that with has been a job I have ended up taking and in most cases enjoying. So that's kind of a way of imagining your audience in their underwear. Yes, it is. It's sort of imagining the interview audience in their underwear. It's imagining the company in their underwear. Well, thank you. That's been a very good interview. Thank you. I hope it was helpful. Culture is the word that's applied to those things about a society that differentiate it from other societies. Its art, language, and clothing are the things that first come to mind, but it also extends to a society's etiquette and laws, who we are allowed to punish and how we are allowed to punish them. When we apply a possessive pronoun to it, making it our culture or my culture, things change a little. The things we consider to be our culture are those things that we are proud of, those that are the result of considerable effort over a long period, or which we feel are particularly deserving of praise. It is this sense of the word that is conveyed when we use culture as a collective noun. Our culture is the collection of behaviors and works for which we feel pride. When we put war after the word culture, things change again. A culture war is a battle for the minds of the people to determine which elements will be proud of, which elements deserve punishment, and how we will punish them. The questions in a culture war ask us to choose between the new and the old, and ask us if our current beliefs properly handle new information. Do we value the lives of the sick and dying over the lives of those who don't exist yet? Do we applaud those who promote our personal faith above all others, or those who embrace all faiths equally? Should sexual orientation limit people's access to health care? Is atheism reasonable or contemptible? In 
all cases, it would seem sensible to compare the harm and the benefit of the two options. But that's not how humans think. It is much more natural for us to view it as a competition between our culture and theirs. This results in a polarization between two sides, each of which is strongly encouraged to adopt the full range of views of their most popular proponents. This is particularly dangerous for those who take the side of the established because they cannot win. Their opponents may not win either, but by the time the question is asked, the world has already changed. Their footing is no longer supporting them. It is to call attention to this slippage that the term "culture war" was created. It's not so bad for the progressives because they have little to lose and much to gain. But those who side with the established culture are perpetually at risk of losing the superiority that comes from standing on the side of right. Enter cognitive dissonance. Fear of losing our superiority brings out the worst in human nature. It is unacceptable, unthinkable that we might be wrong. Ignore, hide, destroy the evidence, silence the messenger, push legislature that states your side is the only one tolerable under the law. Maybe even going so far as to make it illegal to disagree with you. Jail and kill your opponents to silence them indefinitely. These tactics and more have been performed in the past, and will continue to be performed whenever the establishment is threatened, because all is fair in love and war, for the love of one's culture, in the culture war. Welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. This is Rob, and today's episode is about entrepreneurship. I'm sure many of you have a bright idea somewhere in your head that you don't quite know how to make money with. So we're doing a piece on entrepreneurship with a highly innovative product. Our resident expert for that is Marcus Robinson, who was very recently the CEO of a company called Icasa Village. Hi, Bob.、Um, it's a real pleasure to be on your show today. So, what is this Icasa Village thing? Well, I was the brick and mortar side of a two guys in a garage startup called Icasa Village, which was based on some really cool technology to basically develop and to deliver foldable houses. They have multiple applications in the humanitarian marketplace, shelters for refugees in the consumer marketplace, backyards, Zen centers, covers for your jacuzzi. What do you mean by foldable? Are these things you can like fold up and carry with you? Wired magazine called them origami architecture. So think of it basically as a huge origami crane. They were based on the icosahedron, a twenty-sided sphere made out of equilateral triangles. They were based on、uh, Buckminster Fuller's groundbreaking work in the 1950s around foldable domes. What is different about the pods is that they are a double-walled structure. So you really have a dome within a dome. Think of it as an inner wall and an outer wall with six inches of airspace between the two. What that does, which is really quite unique in a hot environment like the desert, it allows passive ventilation in between the two walls to keep the structure cool. And in a cool environment like Kashmir up in the Himalayas, it would allow you to insulate the walls with something like R19 standard house insulation. So you said you were the brick and mortar end of it. What does that mean? What did you do?、Uh, what that means is a very clever guy named. Sanford Ponder, an inventor, came up with the idea for the pods, and my responsibility. 
responsibility was to take that idea and to turn that idea into a actual solution. Uh, in other words, a viable product that would address a need out in the marketplace, identify what that need was, build the product, and also build the business around the product. When you have one of these ideas presented to you and you have to actually turn it into something marketable, how do you approach that? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is you have to ask yourself, does this thing have the ingredients of a potentially successful product? And that's uh, something of a wing and a prayer. You look at an idea and you decide whether this actually will solve a problem out there in the marketplace. And the other thing you have to do is try to get a first approximation of how difficult it's going to be to take that idea and turn it into an actual product. At the beginning, you can make a guess at that, but you go through an initial process of getting to know the idea and getting to know the inventor, the technology, and getting to know what are the strengths and weaknesses of that idea. And then you go about solving the problems, addressing the weaknesses, and building on the strengths. What kind of strengths and weaknesses did you run into with the pods? The first thing is that anybody who's seen the pods uh, at the various Burning Man festivals... I've seen them. They're dead sexy. They are very sexy. Sexiness is a really, really crucial component to whether or not a product is likely to be successful because you can have great marketing, but if you don't have a product that somehow is attractive to people, you're going to have a problem. That was one of the great strengths of the pods. Then there were a series of challenges about the pods. One early one was that the inventor was enamored of cardboard. Being uh, environmentally sensitive, he wanted a biodegradable structure. Well, biodegradability and longevity of a shelter are mutually exclusive concepts. There was also a huge marketing challenge associated with the perception of cardboard in the marketplace. I can just imagine. Here, you want to live in a cardboard box. Really, you do. Yes, you really do. And and, and this cardboard box, incidentally, is going to last a long time. And so this very cool thing that you've just paid a lot of money for, don't worry, it's It's going to last even though it's made out of cardboard. Right. Very difficult challenge. Okay, we'll get on to more of the challenges at a later part. What else does it take when you want to get this type of venture off the ground? Well, I think there's really three challenges associated with taking a great idea and building a business around that and turning that idea into a solution. And largely those three domains are how do you go from idea to solution? You have to learn what problems to solve. Okay, what is the difference between an idea and a solution? Sanford had a really brilliant idea, and this was an evolving idea. Sanford went through an iterative process of developing 200 different designs for a foldable structure before he hit on the core concept of the pod. But nonetheless, even though you have that core concept, you have to address all the issues associated with turning that into a solution. Is it going to survive under heavy snows? Is it going to leak if it's raining? Is it simple enough so that an idiot can put it together? There are just a a myriad of challenges associated with taking that great idea and turning it into a bulletproof product. Okay, one of the things you just said was so simple that an idiot could put it together. Generally speaking, when you're talking about assembling something you just spent $5,000 for, you wouldn't think that you'd have an idiot putting it together. But what have your experience has been with that? My experience has been that if it can go 
wrong, it will go wrong. My experience is that people rarely read the manual. My experience is that you need a solution to a problem which is fault tolerant. Maybe that's the core thing to say. And what I mean by that is if you have a solution which if it is perfectly executed gets the job done, well, in a way you have a solution, but in the real world rarely are things perfectly executed. The context is difficult. Uh, for instance, up in Kashmir after the, the earthquake last year, there are all kinds of on-the-ground challenges to have that environment to assemble the pods. So if you have something which is not fault-tolerant in the sense that it'll still get the job done if there are a certain number of problems with it, you're likely to run into dissatisfaction with what the solution is. Okay. The second challenge that we have to face is really a question of survival. How are you going to do this? If you don't have infinitely deep pockets so that you can basically go off and engineer and spend unlimited amounts of money getting the job done, what in the real world are you going to do to pay the bills while you're going through the process of engineering, while you're going through the process of alpha testing and beta testing and releasing it and actually building up a market for your product? And so, for that matter, who's going to buy all the materials? And, well, there you go. How are you going to do that? And the third challenge is one of actually building the business around that product, around that solution. Who are your manufacturers? Who are your suppliers? What is your marketing strategy? What is your sales strategy? What kind of people do you need to make this happen? In Silicon Valley, where I've lived for 15 years, when a VC, a venture capitalist, assesses a investment opportunity, they're actually looking at two things. They look at the idea and they look at the team. If you have a great idea, but in their view, the team is not sufficiently experienced, they'll pass on the idea because they know that the team is absolutely critical to getting the idea into a successful context. So the survival of a startup is absolutely dependent upon getting some type of monetary flow. How did you go about this with Icosa Village? There are really two fundamental ways that you go about launching a startup. You can go after some sort of venture capital funding or some sort of angel funding. And an angel funding is basically venture capital funding where there is an additional component like for reasons of social appropriateness or something like that, somebody is attracted to supporting your effort. Or you go the tried and true way, the way 99% of all businesses have ever started and you basically bootstrap yourself to success, which means that you generate a cash flow as quick as you possibly can and you constantly reinvest that cash flow into the the engineering process and the perfection of the manufacturing the process and the solution of problems as you move forward. For Icosa Village, we in fact, after making a significant attempt to get the thing funded by VCs, we went the bootstrapping method. The problem for Icosa Village trying to get VC funding was that the value equation was something very difficult to sell to the investors. It was a very novel idea, folded houses. It's not like an iPod or something like that and it was difficult for a VC to get their hands around what was the opportunity for them, how much money it was going to make for them, and so on, and what was the risk return. So having made a number of significant attempts to do that, we turned around and went the tried and true way of bootstrapping. Once we felt that we had a sufficiently robust beta product, we went and looked for what in the software biz one would call the bleeding edge adopters, people that are prepared to take a certain risk on a new technology knowing that it's quite new. You have to ask yourself, what are
are the things you need to do in a bootstrap context to be successful? You have to do risk analysis. You have to ask yourself, do I have something that's good enough to put out in the marketplace? What are the caveats I want to attach to the warranty and the expectations I want to set with basically my beta partners and so on? And how do I make sure that the inevitable problems that will come up during the teething process of taking this great idea and moving it to a robust first-generation product. How do I make sure that those teething problems don't kill the organization and don't kill the product in the marketplace before we've solved the problems? Most of us know from direct observation that most businesses will not succeed. It takes a special kind of person to make it succeed. What characteristics go into that kind of person? That's a really good question. I'll start by giving you a statistic. In Silicon Valley, the sort of standard rule of thumb is that for every 100 funded VC startups, startups that have gone through the entire vetting process where the VC said, yeah, the idea is totally cool, yeah, the team seems strong enough, and they've decided to throw money at this, two out of every hundred startups actually make the VC money, about eight out of every hundred startups break even, and 90 out of a hundred fail. It's a pretty good indicator of what you're up against as an entrepreneur. The second thing is if you look at it from the inside, there are a couple of basic laws of nature of the startup. One is there is literally a crisis of survival almost every day in a startup. And the second is if you're not moving moving forward, you're dying. And you have those two realities that you as an entrepreneur have to somehow accommodate as you're trying to build your business and solve all these problems that we talked about. Let's talk a little bit about entrepreneurial spirit. A couple of years ago at Haas Business School in Berkeley, there was an article on their front page of the Haas Business School newspaper, and it said, can entrepreneurism be taught? Haas, of course, had to answer this in the positive because that's their bread and butter. And I profoundly disagree with that. Because entrepreneurism is first and foremost a state of mind and it's a state of spirit and psychological makeup. Because what are the realities? The first reality, as we just talked about, are hugely bad odds. If you have one chance in 50 of being successful, even if you're funded, what kind of personality do you need to have to take on that kind of risk? You need one where you're prepared to take huge risks. If you're not a risk taker, don't be an entrepreneur. The second one is you're having a life-threatening crisis to the organization literally every day if you're not capable of being emotionally detached from the success or failure of this project, you're going to be an emotional wreck at the end of three months. So that's a second psychological component of what it means to be an entrepreneur. And you cannot teach that. Somebody either has it or they don't have it. A third one is by the very definition of what you're doing, you're pushing the envelope and you're out there in the, in the wild blue yonder. You're taking an idea and you don't know all the problems at the beginning. You don't know the challenges that you're going to face. You don't know what you're up against. And you're constantly in a situation where you have to make decisions about how to push the company forward. I would say as a rule of thumb, 
you have to be capable of making effective decisions with knowing only about 40% of the facts. So if you are by personality someone who really needs to know all the facts before they make a firm decision, you won't be successful as an entrepreneur. I guess the last thing is a startup is absolutely diametrically opposed to a nine-to-five environment. This is something where you have to have so much fire in the belly, so much raw determination to make this successful in the face of unspeakable odds, you have such restricted resources that you basically have to be hugely self-motivating. So those are the core characteristics of what I'd call the entrepreneurial spirit, and those things can't be taught. What can be taught, of course, are some of the lessons, some of the strategies for solving problems. Basic business mathematics. Basic business mathematics, exactly. Haas answered the question in a way which I thought didn't address the core issue. Okay, software development, which is where I come from, is all about iterative processes where you just keep at it until you get it right. I understand that this is very similar to that, but can you give me some concrete examples? Well, it's similar, but it's in a lot more dangerous context. Remember I said that it's a crisis a day. If it can go wrong, it will. For example, for me, this is my third startup. And in Silicon Valley, incidentally, there's a saying, you have to do three startups for one of them to be successful. What that means to me is it's really about learning curve. Well, it's two things, learning curve and whether or not you really have that fire in the belly. Because someone who has failed twice and still goes after it a third time is sort of a never-say-die kind of individual. This startup had a significant manufacturing component. And the biggest surprise was to realize that quality in this day and age is this elusive thing, which somehow all of my suppliers and all of my manufacturers at one time or another screwed up. Orders would be shipped improperly. Things would be manufactured other than the way we were told they were going to be manufactured. You name it, it would go wrong. Multiple examples. And they go from the most unexpected to the most obvious. One example, for instance, uh, we deployed uh, out uh, 40 pods to a international exposition called Forum Barcelona in 2004 for what was called an international peace camp. The pods are basically a slot and tab. You fold together these, these huge triangular donuts that are eight feet on a side and six inches thick and have a triangular window in the middle. And then these slot and tab and connect to their neighbors. To make the thing waterproof, you then take a very expensive but very high quality tape, which originally was two inches wide, and you tape over that seam. And no magic there, you go, okay, I've got a seam between two parts. I'll put half of the tape on one side of that seam and half of the tape on the other. In real life, when we got out to Barcelona, Spain, the laborers that had been hired at uh, minimum wage to put these things together would put one quarter of inch tape on one side of the seam and an inch and three quarters on the other. And it was corrected by taping a second layer over the first and so on. They ran out of tape. We had to air freight more tape over there on our nickel. What we did halfway through this is we migrated to a three inch wide tape to accommodate the fact that people were really just sloppy in the way they did things. Examples like that, that were endless. We had a shipper that uh, packaged up all the pods and never bothered to number any of the boxes. Once they got over to Europe, the boxes were taken out of the shipping crates and and taken off their pallets, and uh, boxes got lost, and there was no way to count, and so they arrived at the destination with half the boxes missing. Again, to make your customer successful, on your own nickel, you air freight out the replacements, and you keep your customer happy, but you've just eaten a huge chunk of your profit. So that kind of crisis a day happens all the time. 
you literally have to just wake up in the morning and ask yourself, okay, well, what is the crisis that I'm going to have to solve today? And it's just part of the normal process. So as I mentioned before, you are the ex-CEO of Icasa Village. What happened to it? <laughs> that should be the caveat emptor to all of your uh, listeners. You know, is this guy such a big expert? How come he's the ex-CEO of the company and where's the company today? The inventor of the pods, the guy who came up with the clever idea, who was also the majority owner of the company, shut the company down. He did that mid-year. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what happened there because we were making lots of money. We had a lot of customers coming in. At the heart, there was a profound communications problem between the two founders of the company. And that speaks to the issue of strong team that is really key to one of the dynamics of having to have a successful startup. We talked earlier about the stresses and strains, a crisis a day, and so on and so forth. And in that environment, it's really important that you manage the comfort level of the various members of the team and that you're attentive to whether they are comfortable with how things are moving forward. I think that one of the strengths of Icosa Village actually had inside of it the seed of a core weakness. What I think was a real strength of Icosa Village was we had paired a really brilliant inventor with a veteran business startup entrepreneur. And we each had a really strong suit, him on the inventive side and me on the business side. But we spoke very different languages and we were unsuccessful at finding that commonality of language which allowed us to really profoundly understand where the other person was coming from. The specific problem, I believe, was one of a disagreement about how to push the company forward. It was my contention that in the absence of venture capital funding, we could successfully bootstrap the company. I believe, in fact, that we were doing that. Bootstrapping means that you're taking a product which is not perfect and you're putting it out there and taking some risk that the imperfections of your product are both going to create a problem for your consumer and cause a problem to the company if they're dissatisfied. And that is the very careful balancing act that you have to do because you have to generate a revenue stream. But at the same time, you have to figure out whether these are reasonable risks both for your customer and for the company. I think my partner's comfort level with a bootstrapping strategy was not sufficient to make him feel comfortable with those risks. I think there was also a difference of opinion about how you move a product from great idea to robust solution. It's my contention that that process absolutely demands the participation of these early adopters. Requires? Demands it. As you work on something, you get a set of blinders. Your way of looking at it becomes fundamentally different from the way your consumer is going to look at it because your consumer looks at it as the absolutely new experience for them. If you've put together the pods 150 times, you do not have that first-time experience that all of your customers have. That's just one example. The process of working out the unexpected challenges, the unexpected issues, the things that you didn't think of because of the blinders that you have on, the only way you find them is by working tightly with your customers. And that's in integral to the process of bootstrapping. And um, that became the shoal on which the Icosa Village boat uh, foundered. So the old saying goes, experience is what you get when you didn't get what you wanted. So what did you get out of this? 
It is such a demanding thing to do that the interpersonal relationships that you have with the team, and it's a very tight-knit team working under demanding circumstances, you really need to foster a really high quality of relationship between the members of the team because that's essential to deal successfully in a very stressful environment. That's what was the Achilles heel of Icosa Village. So what are you going to do now? The technology of folded structures proved itself, for instance, in Pakistan to be a really viable solution. And I encourage um, anybody who's listening to this to go and click on that link from Doctors Without Borders where they're talking about how the pods worked out in Kashmir in this little mountain town called Lipa at uh, about 6,000 feet up. Uh, where they had six to eight feet of snow in a period of four days. And our pods survived that and kept people going at minus 16 degrees centigrade. So we have a technology which conceptually looks like a really good approach to temporary shelter. So I'm reincarnating this effort yet again as a little company called Folded Homes. And we have a set of new structures that build off of all the lessons that I learned in the three and a half years that I worked on Icosa Village. And hopefully this fall we'll be up and running. So where can people contact you if they'd like more information about Folded Homes? I'm hoping that Folded Homes will be uh, up on the web this fall. I have a large group of people that are interested in getting news about it. And if you want to send me an email and get on my mailing list, please don't hesitate to do that. You can get my email on the website here, but also just uh, send an email to markus.robinson at earthwink.net. And I will simply add you to my mailing list and you'll hear about us as soon as we're deploying the new technology this fall. Cool. Well, thank you, Marcus. There will be a lot of information information on our website, including information on how to contact him, and we're going to be putting up PowerPoint presentations and fun things like that for you to check out so you can see these truly sexy things that aren't being built anymore. Thanks for joining me. Bob, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to The Chatter. This is Tiffany. And this is Rob. And as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, we'd like to talk about a couple of changes that we're making. As you may have noticed, we've been gone for quite a while, and we're going to have to make some changes in our layout and recording habits in order to put out shows on a more regular basis. It's fair to say that the whole political environment has been something of a distraction to us, and one of the things that has resulted is that we had, for a very long period of time, one portion of a show recorded, then another portion of a show recorded, and not sure how the two were going to fit together and in fact this show was extremely long because both of those interviews were really long enough to be a show in and of themselves. And we actually wound up dropping a topic simply because we couldn't get into it. And another problem I've had is that the philosophy section, the interludes, involve a great deal of my brain power in order to come up with them. And quite frankly, I haven't had anything nice to say in a few months, and I've been trying to not say anything at all under those circumstances. So you may have noticed that the interlude was a bit less neutral this time around. This may in fact continue to be the case as things go forward, although I will attempt to maintain conceptual neutrality. It's also worth mentioning that the podcast for us has always been part of some longer-term goals that we have, and right now we're re-evaluating how the podcast fits into what we want to do and the directions that we need to go with it. So although we still have every intention of continuing to produce high quality social science, tech, and natural science podcast, 
It is the case that we are going to be a little less strict about neutrality, and we are also going to be less strict about the length of the shows that we put out. In other words, if we have one segment, we may put out one-segment shows instead of doing our typical format, which was always interview, interlude, interview. However, I do want to say that we're going to maintain our commitment to solid information. Although we may wander further into the realm of concepts as opposed to concrete, at no time are we going to wander into the realm of pure opinion and commentary. So with that, we would like to thank a number of people during this period when we have not been podcasting, or at least not been producing podcasting results. And we would like to thank these people for ideas, inspiration, and then both gentle and not so gentle reminders that we need to put out some more content. Thank you for letting us know that you're still listening. We really appreciate that, and that's a large part of the reason why we've released this episode. I'd like to shout out to some people who sent us emails. We had Gavin McQueen, Rick Cummings, and Denny Kirtley. We also received email from Rob Mulally, Amy Gehrig, and Carl Loveless. Thank you. And then from other podcasters and artists who gave us their votes of confidence, John Murphy from Industrial Radio and Patrick Bacchanist from Electronics. Also, Aaron Geis, who you may know as the person who created our brain music, and Daniel Smith of Synthetic Movements. We also have numerous people who've provided us with interesting information, ideas, and concepts on the forum. Biochem Girl, Navtal, Twisty, Morpheus, Dave James Miller, and Dr. Gitlow. Hi there, and thanks. And then two final announcements. Last but not least, we did mail a couple of brains these past few months. We mailed one to Carl in Ohio and another one to Rick in New Hampshire. And then we wanted to let you know that we just found out about Podlines. That's P-O-D-L-I-N-E-Z dot com. And it's a service where you can get your favorite podcasts by dialing a phone number and it essentially sends the podcast to your phone. And we do have phone numbers for both the beds and no beds version of intellectual icebergs as well as one for RL icebergs. So check us out on podlines.com. And that's it for today. We want to thank you again for continuing to listen to us. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Raplin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us on Podcast Alley and Digital Podcast. The music for the intro and credits is Speaking Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. The music for the first segment is Tease by Tantra. The music for the interlude is A World Away by Synthetic Movements. The music for the second segment is Pinnacle by Introspect. The music for the chatter is Pocket Orchestra Energy by Synthetic Movements. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Onk Infinity production. Initiating shutdown sequence.